And so I'm also going to read Acts 7, verses 54 through Acts 8, verse 1. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and a son of man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses had laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So thanks very much, OGC. We love you guys, and um, thanks for including us. And I was pretending to be my daddy. Because I was moving my mouth and he was talking. And thanks for including him. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You're probably not supposed to have uh, favorite missionaries, uh, but that kid's my favorite missionary. <clears throat> now, eight years ago, I almost failed my Acts class in Bible college. Don't worry. It wasn't because I didn't think the book of Acts wasn't worth studying. I totally did. It's just that I didn't think missions was worth studying. And don't worry again, it's not that I didn't think missions was not worth studying for anybody. I just didn't think it was worth me studying. I thought to myself, I'm going to just preach and work in North America for the rest of my life. So what do I need to know about missions? And part of my justification for this reaction was that the class was really supposed to be an exegetical class on the book of Acts. But it was taught by the missiology professor who'd been a missionary for 40 years. And missions was kind of all he ever talked about, all he ever did. And it's kind of the only way he taught the class. So I said to myself, well, this is just not fair. I was supposed to be getting an exegetical class on the book of Acts and learn how to preach Acts. I don't want to know how to do missions, especially if I'm never going to do missions. Now, I know that professor is not watching this, but if he were, he would probably be absolutely flabbergasted and maybe a little concerned that I would end up preaching a sermon on the book of Acts in a series that specifically pairs missionary updates and prayer requests with passages from the book of Acts as a means of practical interpretation. And if that didn't do it for him, he would certainly be shocked that I was the missions committee facilitator at that same church. Um, <clears throat> now, obviously, hopefully, something had to change in my view of missions, and by God's grace, it did. Um, he has changed my heart on missions, and I'm grateful for that. And to paraphrase Jonathan Edwards, I didn't contribute anything to that change except for the stubbornness which made it necessary in the first place. But part of my hang-up on missions was related to a deep misunderstanding that I had about missions. See, I thought it meant traveling to some far-flung part of the world and living in a grass hut and eating bugs and, I don't know, translating the New Testament or something. It didn't sound fun to me. And I thought, actually, like, if I got too close to missions that I would somehow catch it. Like, it's like a, like a virus you can catch. And so I didn't want to get really close. I was wanting to social distance from missions. Um, now, that's kind of absurd, in, in a way, it's sort of like me saying, I don't want to watch football because I'm terrified that the Green Bay Packers are going to drive down from Wisconsin and draft me to be their starting quarterback on Sunday. That's absurd for at least 13,000 reasons. The first 10,000 of which are my obvious lack of qualification, 
We don't even have to touch the 3,000 reasons I hate the Green Bay Packers for that to be totally implausible. But I felt like if I wasn't called to missions, then I didn't need to learn anything from missionaries. And as truly absurd as that is, it's not far off from the same feeling that many of us probably have when we read accounts of Christian martyrs. It's very easy to read the text and to put up some sort of barrier of depersonalization. It lets you hear a missionary share about what they're doing in a way that you can process the information without actually identifying with the information too much so that you might have to do something about the information. You know what I mean? Like, we need to listen to this information in a way that lets us be impressed with it, but not so impressed that we feel obligated to then go and do anything like what they're doing. Like, I need to read this article about the church in Afghanistan being virtually exterminated last week. And I need to read that in such a way that I don't feel ashamed for reading it on my smartphone while I'm lying on my couch in front of my television in my living room. I need to put some distance between me and that. And one of the easiest ways for me to do that, and maybe I can elevate those Christians that are suffering to a pedestal status, some sort of elevated status of super Christians. Like they're so much more than I could ever be, so I don't even have to try. And it helps me to think of them as being way above the standard of Christianity so that I don't have to think of myself as being somehow below the minimum standard of Christianity. Like I want to say that the minimum standard of Christianity is that I share the article on Facebook about the church in Afghanistan and anything past that is like elite status. Well, I have some good news for any of us who are tempted to think in those ways. Today we're going to discuss way better reasons to not be a missionary or to be a martyr than not wanting to do it or not liking the idea. But I have to ask you to trust me that those reasons will come until we get there for a very specific purpose, and that is I need us to be willing to drop the barrier of depersonalization, to drop that hesitancy to identify with in order to read this missionary martyr account and see what there is for us to learn. And in exchange for that trust, I promise to not even try a little bit to convince any of you to be missionaries or martyrs. You could fully live out the application of this text and this message without ever leaving Orlando for the rest of your life. There are other things for us to learn here. So here's what we're going to look at. First, I want us to look at a contrast of two peoples. And I'm hoping that this contrast is going to help us to see what Stephen is saying. And then secondly, I want us to look at a contrast of two covenants And I hope that this contrast will help us to understand why Stephen is the one saying it. And third, I want us to look at a contrast of two lifestyles. And I hope that this contrast will help us to understand what Stephen is doing. So three contrasts, the first one being two peoples. Well, Stephen's speech is essentially a brief retelling of the entire Old Testament in just a few verses. He covers a lot of ground. And he's pointing out that throughout Israel's history, there have always been these two people groups. On the one hand, those who lack faith, sons of men, sons of Adam, sons of disobedience, people of disbelief. And on the other hand, you've got those who have faith, the children of God, children of Abraham, people of faith, children of the promise, however you want to say it. And the first kind, the lack of faith, that is hereditary. 
This is a lineage that you are born into. It runs in your blood and it's in your bones. You are this way because your fathers were this way, because their fathers were this way. But the second is a lineage of faith. You are this way because your heavenly father is this way. It's something that moves in your heart and in your spirit. Something that you are reborn into. And you see these two groups throughout the entirety of scripture. Cain and Abel, Ham and Shem, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, Moses and Pharaoh, David and Saul, the prophets and the people of Israel. Always there's this duality. Not always only two people necessarily, but always two bloodlines. Children of the promise and children of unbelief. Usually they are brothers, or very nearly so. But in every case, the children of the promise are revealing God's word to the children of unbelief, the children of the flesh. And they're almost always rejected for doing so. Either in the short term or the long term, the children of faith and the message that they bear are rejected by the children of the flesh. And usually that sounds like, who are you to tell me what to do? We're the same. We come from the same mother. We were raised in the same household. Who are you to tell me what to do? You think you're better than me? And the conclusion of the story is always that they are not, in fact, the same, but also that the word which comes through the children of faith is not from the children of faith. So it's not a contrast between good people and bad people. It's not that there are good people that have something inherently better in them and bad people that have something inherently worse. It's believing people and unbelieving people. And there's almost always some kind of event that highlights this because what you'll see is the believing people mess up and they mess up bad. And you'll see that the unbelieving people sometimes are surprisingly honorable. So it's not a contrast between good and bad people. It's believing and unbelieving people. And the believing people have to bring the word of God to the unbelieving people so that they might become believing people. That's how it's always worked. Now, because one of these generations is not hereditary, but it is in fact spiritual, what you'll often see is that a generation of unbelievers can come from a generation of believers and vice versa. Children of faith are not automatically guaranteed to come from people of faith. But on the whole, for every one believing person, you tend to find many unbelieving people. That's the consistency. For every one faithful generation, you'll find 10 unfaithful generations. For every one faithful prophet, priest, king, judge, you'll find a score of unfaithful people. And what you see between these people is that very often when the actual fighting happens, when it gets down to the true conflict, the children of faith tend to overcome remarkable odds and overthrow the children of disbelief. Samson slays a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. David kills Goliath with five smooth stones and then he kills 200 Philistines. His army defeats Saul's army. Israel brings down the walls of Jericho. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Noah's boat survives the storm. In every case, God rescues the people of belief out of nearly certain death. And their victory is incredible almost every time. But the other thing that happens is those victories never tend to stick. The victories never last. Because people of faith are not guaranteed to come from people of faith. Because being a child of the promise 
is not the same thing as being a child of your earthly father. It's not automatic, assumed, or deserved. It's a miracle every time. The bloodline of unbelief, though it tends to lose each of the individual battles, in the end, in the history of Israel, it consistently wins the war by simply outlasting the faithful. Now, in Stephen's speech, you see this from beginning to end. At every turn, he's contrasting the prophets, who are the people of faith, with Israel, who are the people of unbelief. And he does so with a particular cutting and sharp personal edge. Because he always identifies the people of unbelief in the story as the fathers of the people who are listening to his speech. He says, Joseph told his brothers the word of God, but your father sold him into slavery. He says, Moses brought you God's word, but your fathers rejected him. David desired to build a house for God, but your fathers made an idol out of it. It's very personal. Stephen is relentlessly reminding them of their bloodline, of their lineage of disbelief. And furthermore, he basically concludes his speech by pointing out that temples or houses of faith are of no value to children of unbelief because those houses are places that God meets with his children. They're not cages where God can be kept in servitude to people whom he has no relational connection to. So this helps us make some sense of what Stephen is saying because it shows how he's weaving together these two threads of the people of unbelief and the people of belief into one story so that he can convict his hearers of their tendency to sin in the same direction as their fathers. They are children of unbelief who make idols out of the blessings that God has given Israel on account of the children of faith. And Stephen's saying, not only do you have no right to brag over these blessings, it wasn't even given to you and your fathers. It was given in spite of you and your fathers. The blessings of God belong to the people of God, and if you do not believe God, you have no claim on his blessings. But none of what Stephen is saying answers the very obvious and necessary question of why Stephen is the one saying this. So the second contrast I want us to consider is between two covenants, and hopefully that will help us to see why it is Stephen preaching this message. You see, the distinction of peoples that we just considered is at times confusing, and it's always complicated because both types of people, both spiritual races live together in one nation. Though they are separate, they are in a very tangible sense one people. And God made a covenant with the whole nation of Israel, both believers and unbelievers, physical and spiritual children of Abraham, everyone together. And when you view this story of the two peoples as a collective, rather than as individual threads, it creates one storyline that's divided into two primary parts, two settings. And those settings are the two covenants that God made with his people. So imagine with me that you've got a great, massive ship in the 1700s that is going to make a contract voyage across the ocean from England to the New World on behalf of the king. And the crew is made up of some officers who are trained and faithful men, servants of the king, but also some hired hands who are really just in it for the money. Now, this is a long voyage, but as long as the officers are in charge of the ship, it stays on course. 
It's on track to reach its destination on time. But now imagine that the hired crew got the idea to stage a rebellion, to take over the ship, to take all of the cargo of the ship for themselves, and to sail to South America. This, once the mutiny had occurred, the ship would then be off track. But as I said, it's a long voyage, so it's not hard to imagine that the officers might make an attempt to regain control of the ship. They might bribe some of the hired hands with a promise of a greater reward if they would return to faithful service in the king. They might use their superior weapons and superior training to overcome some of them, and they could conceivably for a time win back control of the ship so that it is back on course. But ultimately, because the hired hands outweigh the officers so greatly, Eventually, it is not hard to imagine that they would ultimately be overcome and that only a few officers would remain alive. Well, now, assume that the king hears of this, that the ship has not made port when it was expected to, and he discerns what must have happened, and so he sends one of his other ships that was docked in the New World down to intercept the first ship. And this ship, there are no hired hands. It is a full detachment of the king's soldiers. Everyone on the ship, highly trained, highly faithful individuals. So the first ship sails down. It intercepts the second ship. They rescue all of the officers on board that second ship that are still, or the first ship that are still alive. They bring any hired hands who had maybe joined their side. They get all the cargo off of that ship, and then they blow that ship to hell in the water. And that second ship takes the cargo and the crew, and they make the port arrival uh, as they were scheduled to. So what was the problem with the first ship? I won't patronize you by suggesting that it was anything other than the crew. It's very obvious. The crew is the problem with the first ship. You see, the major reoccurring event in the children of the flesh winning out in the long term over the children of the promise meant that Israel was perpetually breaking the first covenant that God had made with them in the wilderness when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They were continually getting off their course. And God had said to them, I will be your God and you will be my people and all you have to do is listen to my word that I'm gonna to send to you through my prophets and it will be carried out by my priests and my judges and my kings. But they didn't do this. At first they simply disobeyed the prophets and then they would repent and that, that was bad, but it were isolated incidents. But eventually it became so corrupt and the children of disbelief became so numerous that even the priests and the judges and eventually the kings fell to this corruption as it spread. It got so bad that God said they had finally broken the first covenant and he left them. As Stephen said, God sent them into exile beyond Babylon and there God spoke only to a remnant of believers, his prophets who were barely hanging on, children of belief in a sea of unbelieving, unfaithful children. But what he told those few prophets is that a new covenant was coming, and it was going to be different than the first one. Ezekiel, in chapter 16, tells a beautiful parable that God gives Ezekiel to tell the people of Israel. He says, you, people of Israel, were like a woman whom I found on the side of the road, bloody and dirty and abused, and I took her in and I clothed her with beautiful fine clothing and I covered her in, in gorgeous jewelry and I gave her all sorts of perfume to make her lovely and I took her to be my wife 
and I made a marriage covenant with her. But she took these beautiful gifts that I had given, this fine clothing and this jewelry, and she used it to solicit affairs from other men. So he says, I will then make a new covenant with her, a new marriage covenant, and this one will be different because this time I will not just change her clothes, I will change her heart. And Hosea acts out an object lesson to this end. At God's instruction, he takes a prostitute as a wife, and when she predictably returns to her clients, God sends Hosea out after her. He says, go and bring her back, because I'm going to bring back the people of Israel like that. And Jeremiah who weeps over the desolation of Jerusalem, over the corruption of the temple and the absolute perverseness of the people, he actually gets the clearest promise. You see, he laments that the people have become utterly unfaithful. He says, there are no longer men of righteousness mixed in with the children of unbelief. There's no longer prophets or priests or kings who are carrying out the Lord's will, but they all rob and deceive their brothers down to the last man, from the greatest to the least. They are all sinful. And chapter 7 in Jeremiah specifically calls out the idolatry of the people over the temple and how they're stiff-necked and rebellious people who refuse God's commands and they presume upon God's presence and protection because they have this temple. And that speech has some shocking and I would argue intentional parallels between Stephen's speech and church history holds that Jeremiah was actually stoned for delivering his speech just like Stephen was. But what the audience of both Stephen and Jeremiah failed to realize is that the temple was not for God's protection as if he needed a house to stay in or his containment as if he could be bound to them. The temple was for their protection from God. It wasn't to keep the holy in. It was to keep the unrighteousness out lest those unrighteous people be consumed. Because where the presence of God is He reigns. And where God reigns, sin is put to death. But in this new covenant, there is no temple. So where is God? And where does he reign? As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not one square inch over creation over which the Lord Jesus Christ does not declare mine. But the only place, Stephen says, on earth where the reign of the king is not recognized is in the hearts of these stiff-necked, rebellious people who are insisting on temples to contain the authority of God so that they might go on sinning outside of its walls and in their hearts. This is what Israel has become in Jeremiah's day. And Stephen is saying, you are still that way. Nothing has changed. But in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, he records God's promise that something is going to change. He writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. He goes on to say, In this new covenant, the righteousness will not be external, but it will be internal. And he says, I will write my law on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. 
In this new covenant, there will be no priests or judges or kings, and no one will teach his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the greatest to the least. And in this new covenant, they will not send up representatives to the mountaintops or high priests into the holy of holies, but all the people will see the Lord. And Joel 2 adds that in that day, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, that your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And so Acts opens up with the pouring out of the spirit at Pentecost. And for a while, it focuses on the teaching and the preachings of the apostles and all the great works that they're doing And in fact, it gets to the point where they're doing so many great works and so much preaching that they don't have time to take care of the practical ministry issues in their congregation because they're so devoted to this preaching and this teaching and they can't stop doing that to serve. So they appoint young men to be servants, not appointed to teach, not appointed to lead. Straight up, there are just some sweet old ladies who needed food on their table. The apostles will do the preaching. These men will do the serving. It's a, it's a great plan. But I do have to say, I find it tremendously interesting that the man that they picked to serve because they didn't have time to stop preaching himself did not stop preaching in order to serve tables. This guy is so full of the spirit that he decides to do both. Get you a deacon that can do both. But the problem is he's so good at this preaching And he's doing so many mighty works that the Pharisees decide they've got to kill this guy. Now, they let the apostles off with a beating just a chapter before, but this guy's got to go. The apostles are fine, but this servant, he has to be dealt with. So just a brief practical comment on effective ministry models. Do be careful as you select deacons to to select men that are not so full of the spirit that they get martyred for preaching if you want to maintain your volunteer base. But I got to be honest, like this really is kind of weird that it's Stephen. It's weird to anyone who's been following the storyline so far because who the heck is this guy? Where does he come from? What's his commission? to serve tables. He's not an apostle. He's not an elder. He's not a prophet or a priest or a king or a judge. He is not qualified in any traditional sense. But the story shows us that because he is doing it, something has changed. In his speech, Stephen never gets to the new covenant. He never even gets to the gospel. He only gets as far as pointing out the need for repentance of the children of unbelief. But the very fact that it's him doing it and not Peter or James or John shows us that the new covenant has come because the spirit of the Lord has been poured out on all flesh. The young men are seeing visions of Christ in heaven and the servants are filled with the spirit of God. In this new covenant, Everyone knows the king. As God promised, they shall all know me from the greatest to the least. And here you have one who could very well be considered least in the hierarchy of the church or the kingdom of heaven, prophesying to the leaders of the Jews. And his face begins to shine like the face of Moses. And he looks up and he beholds that among the audience of those hearing his words, the son of man is standing at the right hand of the father, And the throne room of heaven has opened up to hear the testimony of this servant. 
The new covenant has changed much. But there's even more. You see, Stephen stands as the most recent in a long line of faithful children whom God had sent to Israel to convict them of sin and to deliver them from bondage. It's one faithful man against the many, much as it always has been. But this time, Stephen does not reach for a donkey's jawbone. He doesn't bend down and pick up five smooth stones. And when the execution starts, he doesn't stand unharmed in the flames guarded by an angel of the Lord. As they drag him out of the city and they begin to stone him, he looks up through the rocks at the face of Jesus and he says, Lord, receive my spirit. And then he asks Jesus not to hold this sin against any of the men who are there. And then he dies. Just like Jesus had died shortly before, saying even the same things. And in his dying, he marks the completion of the transition point in history between the way victory used to look for the people of God and the way it would look for the next 2,000 or more years. It used to look like one great hero standing against an army. Now it looks like one humble servant beholding the face of his king and living and dying like he did. But now what are we to do with this story? Plenty of people would hear this and think, well, everyone in the new covenant sees Jesus and everyone has the Holy Spirit and victory now looks like your death rather than the death of your enemies. So I guess you tricked me. I do have to be a martyr. Well, this view is actually very popular in the early church. In fact, in the third century, one of the most well-known church fathers, Origen, famously sought to chase after and provoke the soldiers who had just arrested his father for being a Christian so that they would martyr him with his father. He was 17 at the time, and he probably would have succeeded if his mother had not hidden his tunic. So moms, if you are seeking a way to rein in your particularly headstrong young men, try hiding their pants. But the conclusion that great Christians are martyred, and so I should also seek to be martyred, has not died out. The conclusion that great Christians are missionaries in foreign countries, so I must be a missionary in foreign countries, is still alive and well. And I think, in part, the awareness of this view has made some of us hesitant or afraid of getting too close to these martyr accounts, these missionary accounts, for fear that we will catch that sense of obligation. Or perhaps, on the other side of things, we hide from these stories with a sense of shame feeling we would never be good enough to do what they're doing. Well, I hope that I have some good news for any of us today tempted to those thought patterns because the main thing that God wants us to take away from this text is not that you should be a martyr or even a missionary. And I say that based on some very compelling insight from Dr. Michael Allen on Hebrews chapters 11 through 13. For those of you who are either in our Hebrews class or taking it in the next rotation, Major spoiler alerts, sorry. Now, Hebrews 11 is likely familiar for most of us as the hall of faith. It's a long list of famous Old Testament heroes who have done great things because they had a great faith. By faith, 
Noah built an ark. By faith, Rahab sent the spies away. By faith, Moses led the people out of Egypt. So what? Should we read these stories and each of us sort of pick an assignment to imitate? Like, okay, this section over here and me, we're going to go build the boat. That's our thing. You guys over here, just this half, I want you to find some spies and then immediately send them out. And then the rest of you guys, one-way tickets to Egypt. Uh, When you get there, I want you to walk on foot to the Red Sea. It should be dry by the time you get there. If it's not, just have some faith. It'll be fine. If neither of those assignments are appealing to you, I've also got um, marching around a gated city until the walls fall. I've got attempting to sacrifice your only son uh, as a burnt offering, hoping that an angel will stop you. And according to verse 37, I've got being stoned. So whatever your preference is, we have an assortment here. But believe it or not, that is not the application that the author of Hebrews draws from those stories. At the end of the hall of faith, in the beginning of chapter 12, he says, because we have such a great cloud of witnesses Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't go build a boat. Look at Jesus. Noah built a boat because he looked at Jesus through faith. Don't lead the slaves out of Egypt, across the Red Sea. Look at Jesus. The text literally says that Moses left Egypt because he considered the reproach of Christ better than all the riches of Egypt. Don't go out and try and get yourself martyred. Look at Jesus and consider whatever you stand to lose be it a convenience or a sin or a friendship or your life, consider it worth less than he is. It's not worthless. It's just worth less than Christ. He's worth whatever you're comparing him to. Now, Stephen preached through his own execution because he saw Jesus. Those men including Stephen and Jeremiah in the hall of faith, were not born better than you. They were reborn through the gift of faith because they had seen the Lord and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which has now come upon every member of the covenant of God. So Hebrews 13 concludes the arguments of chapters 11 and 12 by saying, remember your teachers who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their deeds, Imitate their miracles? No, it just says to imitate their faith. And the reason given is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So the logic is, if Jesus became any less valuable between the time Stephen saw him and the time you saw him, then you can reconsider Stephen's faith. If Jesus reigns any less than he did in the days of Jeremiah or in the days of Stephen, then you can reconsider it. But in order to figure that out, you're going to have to look at him. If you want the courage to live like David or to die like Stephen, 
the good news is that the object of their faith has not changed and he is not hidden from you. The truth is that everyone who sees Christ begins to die a little quicker. Sons of the promise see Christ and they begin to walk by the Spirit, putting to death their flesh. That is the old man. That's the only thing that was there when Christ first saved them. And this old man is replaced, not changed into, replaced by a new reborn man. That is the outcome of this way of life that we are to consider, that whoever you used to be will die. Wherever Christ reigns, sin is put to death. And maybe that happens dramatically through martyrdom. Or maybe that happens very slowly, one drop of blood at a time every day for 80 years. Either way, by the time your body finally gives out, the old you will be far deader than it would have been had you not seen Christ. But something happens to children of the flesh too. Those who hear the gospel and do not turn and repent die a little more each time. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, verse, verse 14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, or to put it another way, victorious procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing as well. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So if this gospel smells like death to you, if this invitation to die does not sound like an invitation to live more fully than you are now, and if something inside you wells up and wants to plug your ears and tells you to shout louder until you don't hear it anymore, then your lineage is of Adam. Your fathers have always rejected the Lord, and now so do you. There is nothing in your heart that will survive the reign of Christ in this condition. Repent and look to Christ as your Savior. That doesn't mean screw up the courage to do better. That doesn't mean hate yourself until you feel worse. That means look at Jesus instead of whatever else you've been looking at and trusting in. The focus of stories like these, both missionaries and martyrs, is not the actions of people's faith. It is the object of people's faith. Whether your race involves martyrdom or motherhood, whether it involves building an ark or building houses, whether it involves crossing the Red Sea or crossing the street, in any case, if you would survive this race marked out for you, if you would endure this race marked out for you by God, the solution is that you look to Christ the author and perfecter of your faith, and you trust that you will receive his joy. He is no longer hidden from any of us, but he would be known by all of us, from the greatest to the least. Even serving tables is no excuse not to see Christ as king and death as victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need this miracle. We see that you have been working it through redemptive history, through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, through your people in every age. You are doing something incredible.
you are extending your reign through all the earth. And we ask that you would extend that reign into our hearts, that you would reveal your Son to us, and that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you would pour it out abundantly in our hearts so that when we see Christ, he is not a terror. He's not a judge standing over us, but he is a loving and faithful Savior who can give us the strength to endure the race that you have laid out for us. We ask these things for his sake and his glory and in his name. Amen.